Westeros, episode 44, The Mystery Night. Spoilers all books! Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Lady Guinevere and in this episode I'll be concluding my journey through the Dunkin' Egg stories with a reread and analysis of The Mystery Night. The final story in the trio of tales that form the collection Night of the Seven Kingdoms from 2015 that was first published in a different collection in 2010. In this episode, I'll begin with some background on House Butterwell and Sir Quentin Ball, relevant to the setting and one of the main secondary characters in the story. This is the longest of the stories so far, and are we at all surprised that a series of stories by George R.R. Martin is growing in the telling? To wrap up, a close look at Bloodraven and secret identities and what the future holds for our dynamic duo. Before we start, I want to give a shout out to some friends who once again lent their vocal talents for this episode. Scad from Dabo's Fingers, Mikhail Schick from Vassals of Kingsgrave and Hypable, Aziz from History of Westeros, and Zach from Game of Owns are all returning guests with Scad and Mikhail reprising their roles as Dunkin' Egg. Thanks so much to all of them for contributing to this episode. And speaking of contributing... Thanks as well to all of you who contribute to us in so many ways, whether it's by spreading the word, sharing or recommending us, commenting on our iTunes or YouTube, or by supporting us as patrons. Thanks, everyone. We really couldn't do it without you. And as many of you will know, we do have a Patreon campaign. Your support helps us to keep Radio Westeros going, and there are benefits to your patronage, such as early ad-free access to episodes and behind-the-scenes looks at our scripts. But did you know that patrons also have access to exclusive episodes? Currently, our episode on Varamir Sixkins is the patron exclusive, but over the next few weeks, an episode all about the Arthurian influences of A Song of Ice and Fire will join that one, making over three hours of exclusive content available for patrons. If you want to find out more about how to become a patron, please head on over to patreon.com slash to check out our campaign. And before I begin, I want to give thanks, as always, to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Pepper, Whitney, Kelly, Rory, Laura, Daniel, John Wagarian, and Sister Winter. Huge thanks to all of you. We appreciate you all so, so much. And now, it's time to get started with The Mystery Night. My father never liked him. In the rebellion, Lord Butterwell's second son fought for the Pretender and his eldest for the King. That way he was certain to be on the winning side. Lord Butterwell didn't fight for anyone. The Mystery Night takes place at a magnificent castle in the Riverlands known as White Walls. The seat of House Butterwell, White Walls, was less than two generations old, having been raised by the current lord, Ambrose Butterwell's grandfather. House Butterwell appears in the histories primarily associated with the worst two Targaryen kings on record. In 44 AC, Magor the Cruel exterminated House Haraway after his second wife, Alice Haraway, gave birth to a monstrous stillborn child, and his third wife, Tyanna of the Tower, 
convinced him that the reason was that Queen Alice had had numerous affairs. Alice's father, Lord Lucas Haraway, was Hand of the King and had been made Lord of Harrenhal only seven years previously after House Cahorus went extinct. He was thrown from the Tower of the Hand to his death, and every other Haraway Magor could locate was executed, including the Queen in a most gruesome fashion. Following the destruction of House Haraway, Magor bestowed its holdings upon three river lords, including Lord Haraway's town upon Lord Alton Butterwell. While this gift wouldn't prove to be as poisoned as perhaps Harrenhal itself might prove to be, in the end, the peril of dancing with dragons would be made clear to House Butterwell. Not long after the execution of Queen Alice, Magor's council began to urge him to marry again, as he had yet to sire an heir. Lord Alton Butterwell offered his widowed sister, who had borne seven children to her first husband, as a potential bride of proven fertility, and that any lord was still willing to offer their family members to Magor after the fates of Queen Alice and Queen Cerise Hightower before her seems incredible, but history relates that three lords on the small council made such suggestions. While Magor declined to take the Lady Butterwell, he did take the advice to choose a bride of proven fertility, along with the advice of Lord Celtigar, who recommended that he take more than one wife, and Lord Valerian, who suggested that Magor should marry their mutual niece, Reyna Targaryen, and so unite the two lines of the Conqueror's sons. Thus did Magor choose the trio of women who became known as the Black Brides. Lord Alton Butterwell was at this time serving as Magor's Master of Coin, a particularly challenging job since Magor's wars and the ongoing building of the Red Keep were extremely costly. To try to keep the crown's coffers full, Lord Alton raised taxes and created new ones, but ultimately these actions contributed to Magor's growing unpopularity and the collapse of his reign. We don't know what became of Lord Alton or House Butterwell following the reign of Magor, but we can assume that they prospered at Lord Haraway's town, making their fortune in cattle, though if Maynard Plum can be believed, it may not have been come by honestly, as he dismisses the Butterwells as cattle thieves who have, quote, milk running in their veins. The next we hear of House Butterwell is a brief mention of Lady Beatrice Butterwell, who was the empty-headed companion of young Princess Viserys Targaryen, the tenth child of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, who died after a wild night of merrymaking in King's Landing in 87 AC. What became of Lady Beatrice we'll never know, but nearly a hundred years later, a Lord Butterwell would serve as the hand of King Aegon IV. This Lord Butterwell does have some relevance to the story, as it was he who built white walls, and also he who obtained his family's famous dragon egg around which much of the drama of the Mystery Night will center. Apparently, Lord Butterwell received his king, Aegon IV, at his former seat, and we can guess that this was quite early in Aegon's reign, which began in 171 AC, based on the fact that Dunk thinks how white walls had been raised a mere 40 years in the past. And as the Mystery Night takes place in 212 AC, and Aegon IV guested at White Wall's predecessor, 
We might even wonder if his visit had anything to do with the flush of good fortune that led to Lord Butterwell building this extravagant new castle. It certainly resulted in the Butterwells being the only known non-Targaryen Westerosi family since the conquest to possess a dragon's egg. And to Dunk's justifiable disbelief and questioning of how such a thing came to be, we get this explanation. King Aegon presented the egg to his father's father after guesting for a night at his old castle, said Sir Maynard Plum. Was it a reward for some act of valor? asked Dunk. Sir Kyle chuckled. Some might call it that. Supposedly old Lord Butterwell had three young maiden daughters when his grace came calling. By morning, all three had royal bastards in their little bellies. A hot night's work, that was. So while we never hear about those particular royal bastards again, their very existence might have added much to their family fortunes and aspirations. And White Walls, which was built shortly after the king's visit, came to be known as the Milk House by the small folk for its color and probably also as a nod to the family business. Here's a description. Its walls and keeps and towers were made of finely dressed white stone, quarried in the vale and brought over the mountains at great expense. Inside were floors and pillars of milky white marble veined with gold. The rafters overhead were carved from the bone-pale trunks of weirwoods. White Walls, like Lord Haraway's town, sat just south of the Trident, to the west of the King's Road. Like Harrenhal, which had once been the seat of Lord Haraway, it was in the area to the north of the God's Eye. At the beginning of the Mystery Night, the present lord, Ambrose Butterwell, is a very rich man, a former master of coin and hand of the king, and a widower planning his second marriage to a daughter of Lord Frey. Like a number of his fellow lords, Lord Butterwell had made the choice not to choose a side during the Blackfyre Rebellion, with the result that he wasn't really well regarded by people on either side. In The Sworn Sword, Sir Eustace had mentioned to Dunk that Butterwell had been so dismal as hand that, quote, many questioned his loyalty, and also laments that he didn't fully commit himself to the Blackfire cause, as that could have made a difference in the outcome. And when Butterwell's name is raised, Egg tells Dunk, Lord Butterwell was the master of coin when King Aegon sat the Iron Throne. King Daron made him hand, but not for long. And then, my father never liked him. In the rebellion, Lord Butterwell's second son fought for the pretender and his eldest for the king. That way he was certain to be on the winning side. Lord Butterwell didn't fight for anyone. And Maynard Plum gives a bit more background. When the black dragon rose, this lord of cows sent one son to Damon and one to Daron to make certain there was a Butterwell on the winning side. Both perished on the red grass field, and his youngest died in the spring. That's why he's making this new marriage. Unless his new wife gives him a son, Butterwell's name will die with him. And so we have a picture of a wealthy, though probably weak-minded, middle-aged lord so desperate to continue his family name that he's taking a new young wife from House Frey. However, when the story begins, we'll quickly see that there are a number of question marks surrounding this marriage and the tourney being held to celebrate it. And speaking of question marks, before we dive into the story, let's take a quick look at another character who's also involved in the Blackfyre Rebellion, but in a very different way, and whose memory looms over this story almost from the start.
My father says that it was Fireball, as much as Bittersteel, who convinced Damon Blackfire to claim the crown, and rescued him when Darren sent the Kingsguard to arrest him. The subject of Quentin Ball came up in the Sword and Sword episode, and to recap, Quentin Ball, also known as Fireball, was known to be one of the primary antagonists of Damon Blackfire's rebellion in 196 AC. The former master at arms of the Red Keep had trained Damon, Agor Rivers, Brynden Rivers, and Prince Baylor and Makar in arms. Egg explains to Dunk in the Mystery Night. King Aegon promised to raise him to the Kingsguard, so Fireball made his wife join the Silent Sisters. Only by the time a place came open, King Aegon was dead, and King Daron named Sir Willem Wilde instead. So, a disgruntled Ball apparently threw his weight behind Daemon Blackfire, joining with Bittersteel in urging his rebellion and being on hand to rescue him when Daron, having gotten wind of the plans, sent men to arrest Daemon in the Red Keep. When open rebellion began shortly after, Ball was one of Damon's key field commanders and is credited with a number of important victories in the Westerlands. We hear, again from Egg, that at the crossing of the Mander, he, quote, cut down the sons of Lady Penrose one by one. They say he spared the life of the youngest one as a kindness to his mother. Sometime late in the rebellion, Sir Quentin apparently impregnated a camp follower known as Penny Jenny. In spite of the fact that it was said she was with so many men on the night prior to the Redgrass Field that she became known as Redgrass Jenny, she maintained that Fireball was the father of the son she bore some months later. After she died, her children, the boy she had named Glendon, and a girl, grew up in the brothel she had worked in, called the Pussy Willows, and the women there continued to uphold the story of the boy's parentage. The child was trained in the martial arts by a neighboring squire and taught himself horsemanship while working at a local stable. The unsavory tale that would later be told by Sir Uther Underleaf and apparently confirmed by Sir Kirby Pym, who claimed to have been present, is that a bargain was struck with a visiting knight to give up Glendon's sister's maidenhead in exchange for his knighthood. Whatever the case... Glendon was knighted in front of a score of witnesses, and though one could doubt whether he has the right to call himself Ball, his knighthood doesn't really seem to be in question. Now, getting back to his alleged sire, in spite of his successes on the field, Sir Quentin Ball was killed on the eve of the battle that would become known as the Redgrass Field. Again, Egg has the details. An archer put an arrow through his throat as he dismounted by a stream to have a drink. Just some common man. No one knows who. The mention of an archer puts us in mind of Bloodraven, that master spy whose favorite weapon was noted to be a bow and who was supported by a troop of archers known as the Raven's Teeth. Given his targeting of Damon Blackfire and his two eldest sons at the Redgrass Field, also with bow and arrow, there is a compelling case to be made that Bloodraven was a strong proponent of a policy of killing off the leaders of the rebellion to bring it to an end. We've seen this policy advocated by people as diverse as Tywin Lannister and Jaehaerys the Conciliator, and as such, there's no reason to think that Bloodraven himself wasn't capable of assassinating Quentin Ball 
though we have no specific evidence to prove that. And that is actually an excellent segue into our review of the narrative, since this story begins, as the Sorn Sword did before it, with Egg observing an executed criminal. In this case, it was a hunchbacked septon that Duncan Egg had heard preaching treason not three days earlier. His hands are scarlet with a brother's blood, and the blood of his young nephews, too. A shadow came at his command to strangle brave Prince Vela's sons in their mother's womb. Where is our young prince now? Where is his brother, sweet Materis? Where has good King Darren gone? And fearless Bela Breakspear? The grave has claimed them. Every one. Yet he endures. This pale bird with bloody beak who perches on King Aerys' shoulder and caws into his ear. The mark of hell is on his face and in his empty eye. And he has brought us drought and pestilence and murder. Rise up, I say, and remember our true king across the water. Seven gods there are and seven kingdoms, and the black dragon sired seven sons. Rise up, my lords and ladies, rise up, you brave knights and sturdy yeomen, and cast down Bloodraven, that foul sorcerer, lest your children and your children's children be cursed forevermore. Our story begins at Stony Sept, with a head on a spike. As mentioned, is very similar imagery to what we see at the beginning and end of the Sword Sword. This particular head had belonged to a Septon who was preaching against Bloodraven, much to Sir Tonkin's discomfort, continuing his unease about the hand's famed Thousand Eyes and One from the Sword Sword. It's summer, and very little time seems to have passed since the pair left Coldmoat, likely only as much time as it took them to travel from the Reach to the Riverlands. As indicated at the end of the Sorn Sword, the two are still intending to head to Winterfell and the Wall, and are making their way more or less straight across country with the goal of striking the King's Road north. At Stony Sept, Egg is indignant about the Septon's treasonous lies, while Dunk is more philosophical. Words are wind, he says, and, quote, if we start cutting off the heads of all the fools and liars, half the towns in the Seven Kingdoms will be empty. Six days later, as they approach the God's Eye to take the ferry to the north side of the lake, they encounter a party of lords on the road. Lords Gorman Peak and Alan Cockshaw are accompanied by a score of men-at-arms and servants and a knight going by the name Sir John the Fiddler, who claims to be a humble hedge knight such as Dunk. Lord Cockshaw and the knight called Sir John seem very young, although, like Lord Peak, Cockshaw is quite haughty and dismissive. Sir John is charming, though, and seems quite interested in Dunk, saying, I would love to cross swords with you, sir. I've tried men of many lands and races, but never one of your size, and inviting the pair to join their company to Lord Peak's obvious displeasure. Dunk declines the offer, since the two lords make him uncomfortable, and the party passes by with a final, Perchance we'll meet again someday. I hope so. I should love to try my lance on you. From the Fiddler. Dunk senses that there is something odd going on, since the Fiddler, 
for all his claim to be a humble hedge knight, is quite richly decked out and seems to conduct himself, at least equally, with his companions. As they depart, Dunk asks Egg about the fiddler's arms. Two fiddles and two swords, a crossing grail. What house is that? Egg's answer is surely indicative of a mystery in play. None, sir. I never saw that shield in any roll of arms. Looking at Lord Peak's sigil, three black castles on orange, Dunk at length remembers that it was a knight bearing that sigil who killed Roger of Pennytree at the Red Grass Field, his predecessor as Sir Arlen Squire. It's Egg who tells him the man's name and about his history as a Blackfire supporter, although both fail to recall that Sir Eustace had told them that Lord Peak also killed Lord Hayford, who was briefly King Daron's hand. Doc turns to Lord Butterwell and his tourney, and Dunk is all for stopping at Whitewalls, as they'll be passing it by at any rate. He is particularly taken with the fantasy of facing Lord Peak in the lists and defeating him just for the satisfaction of being able to tell him about their odd connection. It says, Dunk was picturing himself atop Thunder, riding down that sour-faced old lord with the three castles on his shield. That would be sweet. It was old Sir Arlen Squire who defeated you. I could tell him when he came to ransom back his arms and armor. The boy who replaced the boy you killed. The old man would like that. And we'll revisit this sentiment before too long. In the end, in spite of Egg's doubts, Lord Butterwell is craven, they're supposed to be headed for the wall, Dunk really isn't that good at jousting, and there won't be a melee at a wedding, Dunk decides that Maybe they'll stop just for the food. And so they arrive at the inn with the ferry that will take them across the God's Eye, where White Walls will sit in their path as they make for the King's Road. At the inn, the description is notably very close to that of another inn on the north side of the lake, the infamous Inn at the Crossroads. But this is clearly a separate location, approaching Harrenhal and Lord Haraway's town from the south rather than from the north. However, it's easy to miss the possibility that this inn could possibly be a reprise of another inn seen in A Song of Ice and Fire some 12 years before the Mystery Night was written in our terms, although in universe 86 years in the future. In Arya IV in A Clash of Kings, as she travels the Riverlands with Yorin and his Night's Watch recruit, Arya finds herself at a small holdfast on the south shores of the God's Eye. They had left the King's Road days ago to avoid the armed forces that were becoming so prevalent in the area, and seeing obvious signs of fighting to the west of the lake, were now seeking a way to cross the lake itself and make directly for Harrenhal. The irony that Euron hoped to find safety at Harrenhal, while Arya would shortly find it to be a place of captivity and horrors, probably isn't lost on most readers. And while much of the action of this particular chapter will take place inside the stone holdfast that's nearby, it's the description of the inn Arius sees that we should take note of in tracing the intersections of George's characters and locations. It says, When she glimpsed the lake between houses and trees, Arya put her knees into her horse, galloping past Wath and Gendry, she burst out onto the grassy sward beside the pebbled shore. The setting sun made the tranquil surface of the water shimmer like a sheet of beaten copper. It was the biggest lake she had ever seen, with no hint of a far shore. 
she saw a rambling inn to her left, built out over the water on heavy wooden pilings. And compare that description to the one in the mystery night as Dunk and Egg approach the inn. The sun was low in the west by the time they saw the lake, its waters glimmering red and gold, bright as a sheet of beaten copper. When they glimpsed the turrets of the inn above some willows, Dunk donned his sweaty tunic once again and stopped to splash some water on his face. The inn was bigger than he'd expected. A great gray sprawl of a place, timbered and turreted, half of it built on pilings out over the water. A road of rough-cut planks had been laid down over the muddy lake shore to the ferry landing, but neither the ferry nor ferryman were in evidence. And such similar descriptions of an inn on the lake shore, the time of day, and the lake itself can't really be a coincidence. George is playing with repetition, a device that he uses to create a sense of familiarity in his world-building, and with the theme of the inn as a starting place for adventure, which we see repeatedly throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, and we discussed in our At the Crossroads episode. And the overlap of places used in the main series continues when, having been turned away from the inn, Duncan Egg set out to find the group of hedge knights the innkeep had told them would be found camped down by the stumps. They found the campsite some distance from the lake shore. It says... Before long, the trees opened up, and they found themselves in what must once have been a weirwood grove. Only a ring of white stumps and a tangle of bone-pale roots remained to show where the trees had stood when the children of the forest ruled in Westeros. This grove of weirwoods, or their remains, puts us in mind of several other groves of note in the main series, notably the Circle of Stumps atop the hill at High Heart, the Grove of Nine Trees, north of the Wall, where John takes his Night's Watch vows, and the Grove in the Far North, beneath which Bran finds a cave inhabited by Children of the Forest and the Three-Eyed Crow, and more on that one later. But in this exact same area, during a Storm of Swords, Jamie Lannister, traveling south with Steelshakes Walton and Kyburn, makes camp in a wood and uses a stump as his pillow. After having a very unusual dream, he wakes, and it says, The moonlight glimmered pale upon the stump where Jamie had rested his head. The moss covered it so thickly he hadn't noticed before, but now he saw that the wood was white. So the stump is clearly implied to be a weirwood, and while no mention is made of a grove, based on its proximity to the lake road and the description of their arrival at that location, I think it's very possible that this is the same place Dunk found a party of hedge knights camped all those years ago. And since the trio of hedge knights includes one Sir Maynard Blum, who we think is nailed on as being someone other than who he appears to be and will reappear in the main series in yet another guise many years in the future, his introduction here in a circle of weirwood stumps seems highly significant as we'll see later. So, the Hedge Knights, all of whom are headed to White Walls, turn out to be the aforementioned Sir Maynard, Sir Kyle the Cat of Misty Moor, and a young man called Sir Glendon Ball. Sir Kyle is an older man who had served Lord Armand Caswell during the Blackfire Rebellion, while Sir Glendon is newly knighted and prickly, 
Sir Maynard seems genial enough and responds quite mildly when the talk turns distinctly treasonous. It was Sir Kyle's mention of Lord Butterwell's wealth and Sir Maynard's explanation of his upcoming marriage that began it. The revelation that the prize was a dragon's egg is what first brought House Targaryen into the conversation as Dunk learned the history of Lord Butterwell's grandsire. From there, the knights urged Dunk to join them at the wedding, and Dunk mentioned their planned journey to Winterfell to join Lord Baron Stark in the fight against the Ironborn Raiders. Sir Maynard declared that the way to kill a kraken is at sea, and that Dunk would be better off heading to Casterly Rock to join the Lannisters, who were building ships. Dunk doesn't think much of sea battles, having experienced one in their travels in the south. But it turns out that Sir Kyle the Cat doesn't think much of the current king and his hand. He says, The throne should take a lesson from Stark and Lannister. At least they fight. What do the Targaryens do? King Aerys hides amongst his books. Prince Rhaegel prances naked through the Red Keep's halls. And Prince Makar broods at Summerhall. And Dunk gets that uh-oh feeling. Although, for once, Egg does hold his tongue, though it doesn't end there. Sir Kyle blames Bloodraven for the realm's ills for, quote, doing nothing whilst the Kraken spread flame and terror up and down the Sunset Sea. Sir Maynard comments that Bloodraven is, at the moment, more concerned with watching Tyrosh, where Bittersteel was plotting with the sons of Damon Blackfire. But Sir Kyle doubles down. Benny would welcome the return of Bittersteel. Bloodraven is the root of our woes, the white worm gnawing at the heart of the realm. And recalling the executed Septon at Stony Sept, Dunk cautioned against treason, but Sir Kyle once again gives voice to some very treasonous thoughts. Bloodraven put King Ares on the Iron Throne, but for how long? Ares is weak, and when he dies, it will be bloody war between Lord Rivers and Prince Makar for the crown, the hand against the heir. When Sir Maynard objected that Prince Rhaegel and his children would be next in line, not Makar, Sir Kyle retorted, Rhaegel is feeble-minded. Why, I bear him no ill will, but the man is as good as dead, and those twins of his as well, though whether they'll die of Makar's mace or Bloodraven's spells. And that was about all Egg could take. He burst out in defense of his father. Prince Makar is Prince Rhaegel's brother. He loves him well. He'd never do harm to him or his. And, not for the first time, Dunk has to tell his squire to be quiet, thinking, that mouth of yours will get you killed someday, and me as well, most like. And just how close that is to being prophetic in this instance, we'll see before this story comes to an end. Now, having managed to change the subject, the evening seems quiet until Sir Kyle tells the story of saving Lord Caswell's life during the Blackfire Rebellion. Since the seat of House Caswell is Bitterbridge, situated at the spot where the River Mander meets the Rose Road, and their house words are Defender of the Fords, we speculate that this is the battle that Egg will tell Dunk about, in which Quentin Ball slew all of Lady Penrose's sons, but for the youngest. At any rate, the mention of a battle from the Blackfire Rebellion, and the use of the word traitors, gets an angry response from Sir Glendon, Apparently, his father fought for the Black Dragon, 
And Dunk is disturbed, thinking, ugh, this again. Red or black was not a thing you asked a man. It always made for trouble. So Dunk attempts to keep the peace once more, saying that Sir Kyle surely meant no disrespect, to which Sir Kyle agrees. This is all a long time ago. It's water under the bridge. But Sir Glendon clearly had to have his say regarding traitors and proceeded to voice an opinion very similar to Sir Eustace Osgrey's from the Sworn Sword. Damon Blackfire was no traitor. The old king gave him the sword. He saw the worthiness in Damon, even though he was born bastard. Why else would he put Blackfire into his hand in place of Daron's? He meant for him to have the kingdom, too. Damon was the better man. Remarkably, Egg kept his tongue, and so did everyone else, until Dunk spoke again, saying there were brave men on both sides. Sir Glendon took that opportunity to turn his shield to face the firelight and reveal himself as the son of Quentin Ball, though Sir Kyle is confused as to how that could be. He was born after his sire died, Glendon says, but in him, quote, he lives again. I'll show you all at White Walls when I claim the dragon's egg. So they just can't seem to get away from controversy with Sir Kyle and Sir Glendon around. One is obviously a loyalist, but with a strong mistrust of Lord Bloodraven, while the other is an unabashed Blackfire supporter whose hero worship of his supposed father means that he can't stop himself from openly stating his treason. It's worth noting here that nothing is mentioned of Sir Maynard following Egg's outburst about his father until Dunk observes him the next morning in conversation with the innkeeper. And if indeed we're correct about Maynard Plum's secret identity, then in that scene, he's very likely gathering information in the form of gossip, possibly about what lords and knights are making their way to White Walls and any other sort of chatter an innkeeper is likely to relay. And if we're right about Sir Maynard's objectives in attending the wedding, he had much bigger fish to fry than a couple of hedge knights, but his night in the Weirwood Grove with them certainly gave him some interesting conversation to think about. The next day, Duncan Egg had to wait for the lords Costain and Shawnee, who had arrived at the inn the previous day, to cross on the ferry with their retinues, their lordly status giving them precedence. Egg was not impressed with this at all, since, as he notes, they were rebel lords, at the red grass field, Lord Shawnee had been with Bittersteel on the right, and Lord Costain's father was on Damon's left. A dunk is more suspicious of Sir Maynard Plum at this point than the growing number of Blackfire supporters that seem to be heading towards White Walls. He cautions Egg about Plum, wondering if he's a robber knight. But that only seems to pique the boy's interest. I never knew a robber knight. Do you think he means to rob the dragon's egg? And that is an interesting question in light of what will happen at the tourney. Surely a sly little nod from George about the fate of the egg. In the moment, Dunk isn't so sure, but he knows he'd like to see a dragon's egg. The egg's offhanded reply about his own cradle egg, currently safe at Summerhall, is greeted with disbelief. How can he have an egg? After all, there are no dragons. And so Egg fills him in on the details of Dragon's Egg. No, but there are eggs. The last dragon left a clutch of five, and they have more on Dragonstone, old ones from before the dance. 
My brothers all have them, too. Arion's looks as though it's made of gold and silver with veins of fire running through it. Mine is white and green, all swirly. And so there are a couple of points of interest here. First, if Makar's sons all have eggs, then it seems safe to assume that Makar, his brothers, and their sons do as well. And while Egg only specifically mentions his brothers, we do know that historically eggs were given to royal princesses as well, as the tradition of cradle eggs was actually started by Princess Reina for her younger siblings Jaehaerys and Alysanne during the Conqueror's reign. By the time of the birth of Aegon IV, while his uncle was still king, Fire and Blood tells us, Viserys named the child Aegon after his brother, the king, and placed a dragon's egg inside his cradle, as had become the custom with all true-born children of House Targaryen. So, at this point in history, assuming the tradition was continued to the next generations, and based on Egg's comment, there's no reason to suppose it wasn't, there would be in the neighborhood of 15 dragon eggs in the possession of living or recently deceased true-born members of the family, and that's assuming that eggs from the more distantly deceased were being recycled to younger generations. The point being that along with Egg's insistence that there were more eggs available, along with those currently being held, the potential hoard of dragon's eggs belonging to House Targaryen collectively, at this point, is a rather impressive total. And the question of what happened to all those eggs, we'll have to wait for another time, since right now our focus must be on a single egg, the one at White Walls, and the more obvious question of why Lord Butterwell, a former member of the King's Council, dismissed for being ineffective and possibly disloyal, and so potentially seeing his house in decline in spite of his reputed wealth, would propose to simply give away what must surely be the greatest treasure his family possessed. And Dunk does ask the question. In response to Egg's stated conviction that dragons will return one day, he says, Aye, and if all the other knights in the realm should die, I'd be the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. If these eggs are so bloody precious, why is Lord Butterwell giving his away? While Egg's conjecture that it's a show of wealth doesn't seem very satisfying, the connection of the return of the dragons to Dunk being Lord Commander of the Kingsguard feels quite significant in light of what we know of his future. Once again, in this story, as in others, we'll see several references to Dunk being a Kingsguard one day, none of which Dunk himself seems to give any credibility to. Speaking of the King's Guard, the talk then turns to Glendon Ball and Sir Quentin, with the notable reveal that Quentin Ball was married and forced his wife to join the Silent Sisters to make way for his planned induction into the King's Guard. While putting your wife in a nunnery might allow you to take vows of celibacy in another order, and going by real-life precedent, it seems like an accurate portrayal, What it does not do is allow you to marry someone else. So until someone provides evidence that Sir Quentin's wife predeceased him, we and all the inhabitants of Westeros must be forced to presume that even if Glendon was sired by Fireball, no matter what spin he tries to put on it, he himself is a bastard, which will be significant in light of his personal attitude towards bastardy and his insistence on bearing Sir Quentin's arms, and more on that 
later. And so, as they board the ferry at last, Dunk's interest in White Walls and the tourney has been suitably piqued. In spite of his squire's doubts, he decides they will attend. His comments about winning the tourney belie his assurance that he's simply looking for a free meal and a glimpse of a dragon's egg. But the questions, which began so early with men met on the road and continued with the details about the egg, don't end there. In fact, the wedding and bedding are bound to raise even more questions than provide answers. Some words are wind, some words are treason. This is a traitor's tourney, sir. Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions? Yes, I'm always freezing, and he overheats. It's temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Arriving at the wedding, Dunk was placed below the salt in the great hall along with the other hedge knights. Egg was relegated to the yard with the other squires and grooms. As Dunk observed the hall filling up, he realized that the crowd was bigger than he expected and that some of the guests were arriving from great distance. He entertained a concern that someone who had attended the tourney at Ashford might show up, thinking nervously, We should have stayed out in the hedges, sleeping under trees, if I'm recognized. Now, from a reread perspective, it's interesting to consider the implications that no one does seem to know him, because knowing what we do about the guests at White Walls, we might conjecture that there wasn't much overlap between the tourney at Ashford, with many of the scions of House Targaryen present, and this tourney, meant to cover the return of a scion of House Blackfire. And yet, present at the table with the other hedge knights is one Sir Uther Underleaf, who it turns out will be aware of Dunk by reputation. And of course, there's Sir Maynard Plum. If he's who we think he is, it would be foolish to think that he doesn't know who Duncan the Tall is, and he may also be aware that Prince Aegon is with him, in which case Sir Maynard very likely knew who they were right from the start. And, as if he can read his mind, right after Dunk thinks about the dangers of being recognized, Sir Maynard says, Sir Duncan, you appear to be attracting a deal of attention. Well, it turns out to be a bunch of girls who are looking, although Sir Uther Underleaf takes the opportunity to make cryptic comments about Dunk's size, as well as deliver his own opinion, of the attendees of the tourney. After a round of introductions in which Sir Glendon boasts of his intent to win the dragon's egg, Dunk admits that he himself is more skilled with sword and battle axe than the lance, and he wonders if there might be a melee. The other knights seem horrified at the idea of a melee at a wedding, although Sir Maynard is amused and delivers one of those great George R. R. Martin one-liners, A marriage is a melee, as any married man could tell you. 
But although this tourney will feature only jousting, sadly for Dunk, the prizes are remarkably generous. Besides the egg for the winner, it's 30 gold dragons to the loser of the final tilt, and 10 dragons to each of the knights defeated in the round before. And Sir Uther points out, that's not to mention the ransoms to be had for the victors from their opponents as well as something else. I've heard it rumored that some men placed wagers on the tilts. Lord Butterwell himself is not fond of taking risks, but amongst his guests are some who wager heavily. Now, this is something that didn't come up at Ashford, but the placing of bets must have been a significant shadow business at any tourney. Human nature being what it is, we can assume that spectators may have regularly placed their wagers. What would probably be less common is participants themselves placing bets, and Sir Uther's offhand comment about risk-taking is at once a red flag to the man's ulterior motives and a commentary on the true nature of this tourney. Conversation ended as the bride and groom entered, followed by their guests. Lord Butterwell was a man of fifty, running to fat, and the bride a maid of fifteen, freshly flowered. The bride's father, Lord Frey, is described as a handsome and lean man, and he's accompanied by his young heir, quote, a chinless boy of four whose nose was dripping snot. Yes, this is young Walder Frey, incidentally, one of only two characters who appear in both the Duncan Egg stories and A Song of Ice and Fire, and both of whom are in this tale. Lords Costain and Risley from the Reach came next, each married to one of Lord Butterwell's daughters, and next Lord Frey's other daughters and their husbands, then Lord Peak and Lords Smallwood and Shawnee from the Riverlands, next various lesser lords and knights, including Alan Cockshaw and John the Fiddler. And no mention is made of Sir Tomard Heddled, who was married to Lord Butterwell's eldest daughter, although by rank he would have been in the last group. Black Tom Heddle, as he was known, was, quote, a nasty bit of business. He won the hand of Lord Butterwell's eldest daughter by killing three other suitors, and as far as we can see of Lord Butterwell and his relationship with his good son, it might have been sheer intimidation that led Lord Butterwell to marry his eldest daughter to someone clearly beneath her social standing. After all, her father had been Hand of the King, and her younger sisters married lords from the Reach, including Lord Costain, whose house had provided Magor the Cruel with one of his black brides, and whose father had been a prominent Blackfire supporter. Black Tom, on the other hand, as we mentioned in our Crossroads episode, at least going by his name and proximity, could have been related to the family who owned the inn at the Crossroads, once upon a time known as the Clanking Dragon, but now known simply as the River Inn. It's possible Tom Heddle's Blackfire leanings represented his family's outlook as well, which might explain Lord Derry's wrath over and destruction of their famous Black Dragon sign following the Redgrass Field. Speaking of which, rather conspicuously missing from this wedding are Lord Derry and Lady Donnell Lothston, Lord Butterwell's nearest neighbors, and his liege lord, Lord Tully, who it says begged off, possibly indicating a reluctance to get involved with Lord Butterwell. 
In fact, of all the guests at the wedding, only House Smallwood and Caswell are specifically known to have supported the Red Dragon during the rebellion, though indications are that their young lords attending this wedding had been swayed in their loyalties. All the others mentioned are either noted Blackfire supporters or from houses whose allegiance was unknown or uncertain, and this will be the source of Egg's warning to Dunk later in the evening. This is a traitor's tourney, sir. After the guests had arrived and been seated, the father of the bride began the toasts, a possibly revealing interlude for anyone looking for clues to the questions that have already been raised. First, a nicely ambiguous toast to the king, which Glendon Ball reacted to by holding his glass out over a basin of water. And if you caught our Sorn Sword episode, remember that we noted that this was inspired by a practice of the Jacobites of England and Scotland, who supported the Catholic Stuarts, the kings across the water, over their Protestant cousins in the late 17th and early 18th century. Then a toast to the groom and his bride, including a wicked pun as Lord Frey urged his daughter to churn the butter well tonight, my sweet. This is followed by a toast to the hand, Lord Brynden Rivers, which Sir Glenton Ball responded to by dumping the contents of his cup in the rushes, which Sir Maynard Plum found to be, quote, a sad waste of good wine. Sir Glendon replied that he doesn't drink to kinslayers, which is likely a popular sentiment, as Dunk notes that half the guests either did the same or failed to raise their glasses completely. But the irony of Sir Glendon's follow-up that, quote, Lord Bloodraven is a sorcerer and a bastard shouldn't be lost on those of us who have considered the implications of his supposed father being Fireball. While the dead knight may have bequeathed his martial prowess and his political leanings to his offspring, he almost certainly did not leave him his name and a legitimate birth. As Tyrion Lannister would one day say to Jon Snow, life is full of these little ironies. The toast continued with glasses raised for Lord Tully, the ailing Leo Longthorn Tyrell, and the memory of the gallant dead, among others. At last, Sir John the Fiddler raised his glass and proclaimed, To my brave brothers, I know that they are smiling tonight. And we have to wonder how many present knew to whom he was referring, and how many were as clueless as Dunk was. But in the moment, Sir John was still ostensibly just a hedge knight, if an oddly well-connected one. The feast began, and of course, there's a typical Martinian description of the food. And as the entertainment began, the talk turned to the assembled knights and which ones would be taking the list the next day. Many names were mentioned, including Black Tom Heddle, and as the hedge knights debated about each man's abilities, a voice behind them said, Do not trouble to search the hall for the champion. Here I stand, sirs. Feast your eyes. Now, Sir Clendon Ball didn't take this bit of boastfulness very well, although imagine if he knew it was coming from the mouth of the very man he had so recently and symbolically raised his glass to. Sir John took a seat beside Dunk on the bench, evidently eager to join their company, telling them, Butterwell was good enough to place me on the dais, but I prefer the company of my fellow hedge knights to fat pink ladies and old men. Dunk, who'd been getting increasingly drunk, not having refused any of the toasts or the refills to his glass, thought how the fiddler, quote, smelled of oranges and limes, with a hint of some strange eastern spice beneath. Nutmeg, perhaps. Why did he know nutmeg? Sir Glenton, 
lets his offense be known, and the fiddler humbly apologizes. I must beg your forgiveness, sir. I would never wish to give offense to any son of Fireball. When Sir Glendon expressed his surprise that Sir John knew who he was, the reply came, Your father's son, I hope. So it seems like John was on a mission to make sure that even the uninvited hedge knights were on his side when the time came, and as we'll see, he has a special reason for trying to convince Sir Duncan. It was right after the wedding pie was presented that Dunk made his way to the castle yard for a breath of air, although a uh, piss is what he actually wanted. As he found some bushes beneath the stair and began to relieve himself, two men began to descend the stair, talking. Dunk recognized one of the voices as belonging to Lord Peak, while the other was deeper, unfamiliar. They were involved in a conversation about something that left Dunk confused and a little disquieted. Here's the exchange, beginning with the deep-voiced man. Beggar's feast you've laid before us, without bitter steel. Bitter steel be buggered. No bastard can be trusted, not even him. A few victories will bring him over the water fast enough. Easier to speak of victories than to win them. Old Milkblood expected the boy to have it, and so will all the rest. Glib words and charm cannot make up for that. A dragon would. The prince insists the egg will hatch. He dreamed it, just as he once dreamed his brother's dead. A living dragon will win us all the swords that we could want. A dragon is one thing, a dream's another. I promise you, Bloodraven is not off dreaming. We need a warrior, not a dreamer. Is the boy his father's son? Just do your part, as promised, and let me concern myself with that. Once we have Butterwell's gold and the swords of House Frey, Harrenhal will follow, then the Brackens. Otho knows he cannot hope to stand. And that's all he hears, and Dunk doesn't understand the implications of what he's heard, in large part because he's drunk, but most readers will now have a very good idea of what's happening. Here are the answers to several of the questions that have arisen already, why so many Blackfire supporters are in attendance, why the egg is being offered as a prize, and possibly even the real reason why Lord Butterwell had chosen this moment to ally himself with House Frey and host attorney to celebrate it. The careful reader might even find their suspicions about the true identity of John the Fiddler confirmed based on this snippet of conversation when combined with the young man's reference to his dead brother's and his expected victory at the tourney. Upon re-entering the hall, Dunk finds that the entertainment has become more boisterous. He's particularly taken by a troop of dwarfs who had arrived in the belly of a wooden pig. It says, A troop of painted dwarfs came bursting from the belly of a wheeled wooden pig to chase Lord Butterwell's fool about the tables, walloping him with inflated pig bladders that made rude noises every time a blow was struck. It was the funniest thing Dunk had seen in years, and he laughed with all the rest. Lord Frey's son was so taken by their antics that he joined in, pummeling the wedding guests with a bladder borrowed from a dwarf. The child had the most irritating laugh Dunk had ever heard, a high, shrill hiccup of a laugh that made him want to take the boy over a knee or throw him down a well. <laughs> so if only... Young Walder Frey had gone down the well at White Walls. Imagine how the history of Westeros would have changed. Sir Maynard took the opportunity to inform Dunk that the little boy 
was the reason why this marriage was happening, since he had apparently found his sister in a compromising situation with a scullion at the twins. Dunk can't believe it, thinking, Lord Butterwell had broad lands and pots of yellow gold. Why would he wed a girl who'd been soiled by a kitchen scullion and give away his dragon's egg to mark the match? The phrase of the crossing were no nobler than the Butterwells. They owned a bridge instead of cows. That was the only difference. Lords, who can ever understand them? And so Dunk crystallizes the questions that the narrative has raised so far. Why this match, which leads to why this tourney, and why this reward? This is a fairly common device in a mystery story, where the mystery is presented along with the suspects and a selection of evidence, and then restated for the reader. And in the next paragraph, it says that Dunk began to ponder the things he had overheard in the yard, a large arrow pointing to the importance of that conversation in case you missed it. But Dunk, being drunk, fails to make the connections and passes out to dream of Tansel and Rohan Weber. And when he awakes, it's time for the bedding. I dreamed of you, Sir Duncan, before I even met you. When I saw you on the road, I knew your face at once. It was as if we were old friends. The bride was in the arms of her uncle, Sir Franklin Frey, but as he was stumbling drunk, Sir John the Fiddler pushed Dunk forward to take over. Let the giant carry her! Dunk himself wasn't feeling very steady on his feet, and the rowdy dwarfs swarming around his legs didn't exactly help, but he did at last deliver the bride to Lord Butterwell's bedchamber, a handsome room with its own ensuite privy, and it was there he saw the dragon's egg. Lying on a black velvet cushion atop a marble plinth, the egg was, quote, bigger than a hen's egg, though not so big as he'd imagined. Dunk observed that, Fine red scales covered its surface, shining bright as jewels by the light of lamps and candles. And when he was compelled to pick it up, he thought it was heavier than he expected. But picking it up proved to be a mistake, as a big man with coal-black beard and boils angrily told him to keep his hands off. Dunk was taken aback as much by the violence of the man's reaction as by his voice. It was him, the man with peak. In confusion, Dunk left the room, but not wanting to meet a naked Lord Butterwell, who he could hear coming up the stairs, he went in the opposite direction and found himself on a tower roof. His regret over having touched the egg and the confrontation with the angry black-haired knight led to memories of Ashford. It says, The memory made Dunk feel guilty, as it always did. Three good men dead to save a hedge knight's foot. It made no sense and never had. Take a lesson from that, monk. It is not for the likes of you to mess about with dragons or their eggs. And that's only slightly ironic, considering that for the last two years, all Dunk has been doing is messing about with dragons and one of their eggs. At that moment, a voice behind him commented, It looks almost as if it's made of snow. It's John the Fiddler who followed Dunk to the roof to escape his tiresome, drunk companion, Alan Cockshaw, and have a flirt with the strapping hedge knight. 
Because in case you hadn't noticed, the fiddler has been flirting with Dunk from the start, saying things like, I'd love to cross swords with you, sir, and perchance we'll meet again someday. I'd love to try my lance on you. Sir John now expressed a wish that he could join Dunk on the road north, saying, You could show me the way. To Dunk's obvious confusion, It's right up the king's road. If you stay to the road and keep going north, you can't miss it. Sir John replies, I suppose not, though you might be surprised what some men can miss. This could be a reference to his own secret identity, but it could also be interpreted as him chuckling at Dunk the Lunk being oblivious to his advances. And we'll have more about Sir John and his advances later. But the next thing he said to Dunk is rather remarkable in light of Dunk's backstory. When asked why he came to the roof, the fiddler replied that he also wanted to escape the bedding. And then he added, I dreamed of you, Sir Duncan. Before I even met you, when I saw you on the road, I knew your face at once. It was as if we were old friends. And so naturally, Dunk was struck by a strong feeling of deja vu, with Prince Darren Targaryen's words coming back to him in a rush. I dreamed of you, he said. My dreams are not like yours, Sir Duncan. Mine are true. When pressed, the fiddler explained, I dreamed that you were all in white from head to heel with a long pale cloak flowing from those broad shoulders. You were a white sword, sir, a sworn brother of the Kingsguard, the greatest knight in the Seven Kingdoms, and you lived for no other purpose but to guard and serve and please your king. Dunk scoffed that only a king can make a knight of the Kingsguard, and Sir John replied that, He'd have to take the throne to make it happen. Dunk is really no good at this banter and completely failing to see what is going on on two levels. But in spite of his confusion, he was able to accuse the fiddler of being drunk, at which Sir John says, I hope you'll put more faith in what I tell you when you see the dragon hatch. That's right, not only did the fiddler dream of Dunk at White Walls, but there was a dragon as well. He described his dream as featuring this pale white castle, you, and a dragon bursting from an egg. He went on to say that his dreams come true, yet another echo of Prince Daron, and told Dunk how he dreamed his brothers dying. I once dreamed my brothers lying dead. They were twelve and I was seven, so they laughed at me and died. I'm twenty-two now, and I trust my dreams." And of course, those two brothers who died are the twins killed by Bloodraven at the Redgrass Field, though Dunk didn't see it at the time. One thing he did know is that dreams are treacherous. They don't necessarily show what the dreamer believes they do, and he didn't want to get involved, so he turned to go, pleading the drink. But Sir John begged him to stay. Dunk asked exactly what he wanted, and the answer was part offer, part confession. Your sword... I would make you mine own man and raise you high. My dreams do not lie, Sir Duncan. You will have that white cloak, and I must have the dragon's egg. I must. My dreams have made that plain. And then Lord Gorman Peak appeared with a pair of guards. They hustle Sir John away over his vocal protests, and Lord Peak demanded to know what had passed between them. A lot of nonsense as far as Dunk was concerned, but still Lord Peak saw fit to threaten him. His reward will be, quote, Three feet of cold steel through your belly if you speak a word of what just happened. Dunk's reply to that was to vomit on Lord Peak's boots. 
Back downstairs, Dunk returned to his tent and found Egg reading a roll of arms. He was researching various arms that he'd seen, and for a moment, both seemed to be on the verge of telling the other something important. But then Dunk noticed Egg's lip was cut and wanted to know what happened. It turned out the squire had been unable to hold his tongue while the other squires at the feast were gossiping about his father and uncles. Dunk was so angry that he forgot all thought of other discussion and sent Egg off to find the steward to enter him in the lists. At the last moment, he decided against using his real name, just in case anyone present remembered the Ashford tourney, and instructed Egg to enter him as a mystery knight under the name the Gallows Knight, taken from the image on the shield he had purchased at Stony Sept, but had yet to have repainted to replace the one destroyed at Coldmo. The next day dawned hot and still, with Dunk suffering a hangover. He couldn't remember the details of his conversation with the fiddler, and while he attempted to recall what he was even doing on the roof, the jousting took his attention. As he watched, Sir Franklin Frey defeated Sir Harbert Page, and Sir Glendon prevailed over one of Lord Butterwell's household knights. Then it was Sir Kyle the Cat versus Lord Joffrey Caswell, the youth whose father he claimed to have served and to have known as a child. Before riding out, Sir Kyle told Dunk he would lose on purpose in a gamble that the young lord would recall their former acquaintance and take him into service. There's no honor in that, thinks Dunk, but he says nothing. Lord Joffrey Caswell is described as a weedy youth, which puts us in mind of his descendant, Lord Laurent Caswell, who would host Renly Baratheon at Bitterbridge 80-plus years in the future. Laurent is called a wispy young man in Catelyn's point of view, and he would shut himself up inside his castle following Renly's death. He's also the same man described by Sir Raleigh Duckfield to Tyrion as, quote, a weedy, pinched-faced sneak for stealing the sword Raleigh's own father had made for him. As well... House Caswell had been bystanders in the horrific death of Prince Maelor Targaryen at Bitterbridge during the Dance of the Dragons, and one of Lady Rohan Weber's suitors was Sir Clayton Caswell, a pretty youth, perhaps Joffrey's brother, who had laughed at Dunk's confusion when he first arrived at Coldmoat. Perhaps armed with greater insight into the character of House Caswell, Sir Kyle would have chosen differently, but in any event, his loss wouldn't work out as he planned, with Lord Joffrey rejecting the idea of taking on such a feeble knight while happily taking his arms, armor, and horse off him. Then it was Dunk's turn to face Sir Uther Underleaf. In spite of Egg's warnings and advice and his own physical discomfort with the heat and the pounding head of his hangover, Dunk didn't see the slight aging knight who used a snail as his sigil as much of a challenge. The tilt began well enough, with Dunk riding well, keeping his lance focused on Sir Uther's shield, but then it says, when ten yards remained between them, Sir Uther shifted the point of his lance upward. And the point of that lance, shaped like an iron fist, hit Dunk square in the face, and he woke up four hours later in the cellars of the castle under the care of the maester. After hearing that the man had sent Egg to deliver his arms, armor, and horse to Sir Uther, Dunk insisted upon leaving immediately. And so, against medical advice, if you will, Dunk found himself back in the yard where the jousting continued, as did both Sir Glendon Balls and Sir John the Fiddler's winning streaks. Seeking water, he passed the dwarfs from the previous night's entertainment, preparing to leave the castle. He addressed them, but 
only got a glare in return. Up close, he thought one of them smelled like a privy, which is a little offhand clue that we'll return to later. Finding the well, he came upon Sir Maynard and Sir Kyle, and it was then that he heard of the failure of Sir Kyle's plan and received some advice from Sir Maynard. It was the mention of Sir John the Fiddler refusing to take ransoms from his defeated opponents that led to Maynard Plum saying, That boy is fiddling up a storm, and all of us would do well to be gone from here before it breaks. There is a lesson here, if you have the sense to take it, Sir Duncan. It is not too late for you to go. When Dunk asked why and where he would go, Sir Maynard's reply was revealing. Anywhere. Winterfell? Summerhall? A shy by the shadow? It makes no matter. So long as it's not here, take your horse and armor and slip out the postern gate. You won't be missed. The snail's got his next tilt to think about, and the rest have eyes only for the jousting. Now, Sir Maynard knew that the pair were heading to Winterfell, and the reference to a shy is likely a way of saying the ends of the earth. But the inclusion of Summerhall, along with his reply, when Dunk asks him what he knows of Egg, are strong indicators that Maynard Plum, whoever he is, is aware not only of Dunk's identity, but Egg's, and would like to see him out of harm's way. He said, I know that eggs do well to stay out of frying pans. White Walls is not a healthy place for the boy. Sir Maynard was trying to point Dunk in a direction, and as readers, we should be able to see it, even though Dunk, who isn't actually always as slow on the uptake as he thinks he is, failed to see it due to his fuzzy memories of the previous night. He did, however, express a feeling that all the challengers at the tourney were going to fall to the fiddler, a feeling Sir Maynard shared. So do I, a bad feeling for any man or boy unwise enough to stand in our fiddler's way. When Dunk returned to his tent, we get a touching reunion with Egg, and it's obvious how much these two have really grown to care about each other. And when Dunk insisted that they have no choice but to deliver his now clean and shining armor and well-brushed horse to Sir Uther, Egg was clearly heartbroken, since that will mean the end of their partnership. Without a horse and arms, Dunk would no longer have need of a squire, He's too proud to take a place at Summerhall, and he proposed that Egg would likely have to return home while he himself would seek service somewhere as a guardsman. And so arriving at Sir Uther's pavilion to turn over his belongings, Dunk found the knight counting coins with his squire. Sir Uther was objecting to a coin or coins that the young man had accepted. A full-weight gold dragon, it appeared to be legitimate until closer inspection revealed that it bore the likeness of Damon Blackfire. Rebels gold, traitors gold, treasonous to own, twice as treasonous to pass. And Dunk was more uneasy than ever, thinking that he owed Egg an apology for not listening when he had named this a traitor's tourney. But Sir Uther changed the subject to the one Dunk came about, more or less, he revealed that he was what he called a tourney knight, who makes his living at tourneys by a combination of defeating lesser men and betting on the outcomes of his own tilts. Insider betting was likely as frowned upon in Westeros as it is in real life, although betting on the games, as we said earlier, was surely commonplace. Now, Uther had no interest in accepting Dunk's possessions, inquiring instead if he had the coin to ransom them back, 
Dunk did not, though he uncomfortably offers to pay the debt back over time or take out a loan to make the payment. Instead, Sir Uther suggested that Dunk join him on the tourney circuit to be his fall guy. Noting that the odds against him rose when he faced Dunk in the lists due to the disparity of their size, he'd seen a way for them to make the most of that in gambling circles. He also told Dunk about Sir Glendon Ball's background. He expected to face Sir Glendon later that day, revealing that he had been paying the steward to give him the matchups he wanted. Now, obviously, Dunk wasn't going to go for any of this and said so, but in an attempt to convince him, Sir Uther revealed something about their match. He hit Dunk in the head rather than in the chest, he said, because he was paid to do so. Six dragons in advance, and four when Dunk died. He had no idea who had hired him, sending message and payment, but he points something out to Dunk. I may not have been at Ashford Meadow, but jousting is my bread and salt. I follow tourneys from afar as faithfully as the maesters follow stars. I know how a certain hedge knight became the cause of a trial of seven at Ashford Meadow, resulting in the death of Baylor Breakspear at his brother Makar's hand. Prince Baylor was well-loved. The bright prince had friends as well, friends who will not have forgotten the cause of his exile. Think on my offer, sir. The snail may leave a trail of slime behind him, but a little slime will do a man no harm, whilst if you dance with dragons, you must expect to burn. So, Dunk left Sir Uther's tent to find that Egg had disappeared. Thinking it was grief at parting with thunder, he set out in search of his squire. When he didn't find him at their tent, he headed to the lists, and there he met Sir Glendon, who had continued to win, but was angry at the scorn that was still being heaped upon him. The lords had taken to calling him the Knight of the Pussy Willows after the brothel he had been raised in, obviously questioning his right to bear Fireball's arms, and maybe this would have been a good time for Dunk to recall the words Baylor Breakspear spoke to him at Ashford and perhaps counsel his young friend. By law, only a true-born son is entitled to inherit a knight's arms. But instead, Dunk turned the talk to horses and how perhaps Glendon might want to join them on their mission to take service at Winterfell. Glendon was suspicious of this overture and stated his own intention of doing whatever it took to claim the white cloak his father had once been promised. Dunk thinks, You have as much chance of wearing a white cloak as I do. You were born of a camp follower, and I crawled out of the gutters of Flea Bottom. Kings do not heap honor on the likes of you and me. Now that's pretty interesting in light of what we know about Dunk's future. Of course, now we have to wonder if one day Sir Glendon will also wear a white cloak alongside Sir Duncan the Tall. Certainly the annals of the Kingsguard reveal that numerous bastards, hedge knights, and men of uncertain origin were raised to the white. And since ability seems to be a key requirement, and Sir Glendon is noted to be blessed with that, and also Egg seems to hold him in some esteem, if he continues his acquaintance with Duncan Egg, it might not come as a surprise to find him on Egg's King's Guard one day. Just now, though, Sir Glendon revealed to Dunk that he had had an offer from Lord Gorman Peak. He said, he offered me a place at Starpike. He said there was a storm coming, the likes of which Westeros had not seen for a generation, that he would need swords and men to wield them, loyal men who knew how to obey. The catch for Sir Glendon would be that he must lose to the fiddler. 
and noticed the use of the same language Sir Maynard had used about Sir John and an oncoming storm, it's also worth mentioning that Dunk had earlier noticed storm clouds in the east headed their way, so we can really see how George is setting the mood for a storm here. Now, naturally, a youth of Sir Glendon's ambition didn't take this offer. He was there to win the dragon's egg, and he told Lord Peak so, though in so doing, he made an enemy. Peak called him a fool and told him he'd better watch his back, for the fiddler had many friends, while he, Glendon, had none. Dunk assured Sir Glendon that he had one friend at least, two once he found egg, and, Ball replied, it's good to know there are some true knights still. Continuing his search for Egg in the viewing stands didn't turn him up, but Dunk got a look at Black Tom Heddle, that nasty bit of business, and finally realized that the knight who had caught him holding the egg at the bedding and had a deep voice and a secret conversation with Lord Peak earlier in the evening was none other than Lord Butterwell's son-in-law. The words Heddle had spoken to Peak came rushing back to him, especially the urgent demand, Is the boy his father's son? Dunk noticed that Lord Butterwell was absent, as was his new good father, Lord Frey, and set out again, getting more worried about his squire by the minute. This time, his footsteps led him to the tent of Sir John the Fiddler. Sitting outside the pavilion, Lord Alan Cockshaw was recovering from an unhorsing and was visibly astonished when he saw Dunk. He clearly expected him to be dead, though Sir John laughed, equally certain of Dunk's survival. Dunk begged a private word, to the obvious dismay of Lord Allen, who the fiddler had begun to treat very dismissively, and was taken into the tent. Once inside, Sir John offered to get Dunk's horse and armor back from Sir Uthor. Dunk replied evasively that he was looking for his squire, and the fiddler offered to have his men help search. And now the penny finally dropped for Dunk, and once the first one did, all of its fellows followed right along, and he said, You are no hedge knight, and up on the roof last night, you said some things. John is not your true name, is it? And in just at that moment, as Dunk realized, he has egg's eyes, Gorman Peak walked in. His true name will be revealed soon enough to those who need to know. Now, Peek started to warn Dunk, probably just as he had done with Sir Glendon, but having just told Dunk that, according to his dreams, we belong together, Sir John reiterated to Lord Peek that he had dreamed of Sir Duncan, and then departed to his next tilt. When Lord Gorman remarked that those dreams would be the death of them all, perhaps he didn't know how prescient his words were. Dunk certainly didn't, and he completely ignored them, instead asking how much Galtry the Green, the fiddler's opponent, had cost. Pennies were dropping all over the place when Lord Peak refers to Sir John as his grace, and finally Dunk got the answer to the question that had been nagging at him all along. Why this wedding? Here is Peak's confession. Lord Butterwell wanted a new young wife to warm his bed, and Lord Frey had a somewhat soiled daughter. Their nuptials provided a plausible pretext for some like-minded lords to gather. Most of those invited here fought for the Black Dragon once. 
The rest have reason to resent Blood Raven's rule, or nurse grievances and ambitions of their own. Many of us had sons and daughters taken to King's Landing to vouchsafe our future loyalty, but most of the hostages perished in the Great Spring Sickness. Our hands are no longer tied. Our time is come. Ares is weak, a bookish man and no warrior. The commons hardly know him, and what they know they do not like. His lords love him even less. His father was weak as well, that is true, but when his throne was threatened, he had sons to take the field for him, Baylor and Makar, the hammer and the anvil. But Baylor Breakspear is no more, and Prince Makar sulks at Summerhall, at odds with king and hand. Lord Gorman went on to dismiss Bloodraven as a sorcerer and a kinslayer, and mentioned Sir John's dream of a dragon hatching. Unfortunately for Lord Peak, he doesn't have Dunk's experience with dragon dreams. With a final warning, Peak departed, and Dunk followed him to the lists where he saw the fiddler defeat Sir Galtry as planned, and as Sir Uther Underleaf prepared to take the field, not against Sir Glendon Ball, as he had expected, but against Sir Tom Heddle, a much more dangerous foe, Dunk realizes that the tourney is now being inexorably tilted towards Sir John, and all potential competition is being removed. They see Sir Uther as a threat, so they mean for Black Tom to remove him from the Fiddler's path. Heddle himself was part of Peake's conspiracy. He could be relied on to lose when the need arose, which left no one but... As he's thinking this, about to make a new connection, the rainstorm that had been threatening broke, and many of the spectators went running from the weather. Lord Alan Cockshaw appeared, saying, See how they run? What will they do when the real storm breaks, I wonder? Dunk wondered why this man was suddenly talking to him, but at that moment, Lord Peak appeared, declaring that there was a spy in their midst and the dragon's egg had been stolen. And the fiddler's reaction is as priceless as the missing egg. My egg? A clear admission that the fix was in on this traitor's tourney. But even as Lord Peak accused Glendon Ball, who had refused to lose for him, of stealing the egg... Alan Cockshaw warned Dunk from interfering. Stay out of this if you want to find that squire of yours. And so, Dunk followed Alan Cockshaw to a quiet courtyard surrounding a well. He didn't really like the feel of it, but as he reached for his knife, he felt a dagger in the small of his back. It turned out that jealousy is a powerful motivator, and it was Alan Cockshaw who had paid Sir Uther to remove his competition. It's the hour of confessions, and Lord Allen's begins. Damon's mine. I will command his king's guard. You are not worthy of a white cloak. Another penny dropped with the use of that name. Damon. The name rang in Dunk's head. Not John. Damon. After his father. Damon Blackfire sired seven sons. Two died upon the red grass field. Twins. And then Lord Allen's confession continued and became a threat. Yes, Aegon and Aemon. Wretched, witless bullies, just like you. When we were little, they took pleasure in tormenting me and Damon both. I wept when Bittersteel carried him off to exile, and again when Lord Peak told me he was coming home. But then he saw you upon the road and forgot that I existed. Cockshaw waved his dagger threateningly. You can go into the water as you are, or you can go in bleeding. Which will it be? So, 
plump and pampered Lord Cockshaw was either mad or foolish to try and shove Dunk, who Rohan Weber had described as seven feet of stubborn, down a well with only a dagger to persuade him. As Cockshaw lunged at him, Dunk was able to grasp a loose rock from the top of the well, and it says, fed it to his lordship. With a mouthful of blood and broken teeth and a broken wrist where Dunk had seized his dagger hand, it was Lord Alan Cockshaw who plunged headlong into the well and... R.I.P. Lord Cockshaw. In the game Rock, Paper, Scissors, Rock Beats Scissors, and this deadly game of Rock versus Dagger was no different. But we're reminded of a fight in A Feast for Crows where Brienne of Tarth faced the fool Shagwell at the Whispers. Having killed his companions, Brienne had forced Shagwell to dig a grave for Nimble Dick Crab. When she turned her back on him, Shagwell lunged at her, and it's a scene highly reminiscent of this one, although the weapons are inverted. Shagwell had a jagged chunk of rock clutched in one hand. Brienne had her dagger up her sleeve. And in this case, Brienne also defeated her opponent easily, and George tells us a dagger will beat a rock almost every time. The scene with Cockshaw at the well, published five years after the one with Brienne at the Whispers, might just be George's answer to Almost. And we don't think it's a coincidence that in each of the tales about Sir Duncan, we've found an echo or correlation between one of his fights and one of his descendant Brienne's. Duncan Arian in The Hedge Knight and Brienne and Loras in A Clash of Kings, published in the same year. Dunk and Sir Lucas in The Sworn Sword and Brienne and Jamie in A Storm of Swords, published three years apart. And now this one. Perhaps in a future story, we'll see an echo of a fight Brienne has yet to come and we'll cheer for them both all the harder. As Lord Allen was splashing in the well, a voice said, Well done, sir. And don't forget, it's been raining all this time, so all Dunk could make out at first is a hooded figure with a single white eye. The figure turns out to be Maynard Plum, and the eye is the moonstone brooch that pinned his cloak. Sir Maynard helped Dunk away to get his arm cut in Cockshaw's initial lunge, bound up. As they walk, Dunk told them about the fiddler whose identity Sir Maynard seemed well aware of. He said, I did urge you to flee, you will recall, but you esteemed your honor more than your life. An honorable death is well and good, but if the life at stake is not your own, what then? Would your answer be the same, sir? Distressed, Dunk demanded to be told what Sir Maynard knows of Egg. He's with the gods, was the answer, and Dunk knows why. He tried to use the boot. Sir Maynard concurred, and though he isn't absolutely sure, he speculated. He showed the ring to Maester Lothar, who delivered him to Butterwell, who no doubt pissed his breeches at the sight of it and started wondering if he had chosen the wrong side and how much Bloodraven knows of this conspiracy. The answer to that last is quite a lot. Now, undoubtedly full of dread at the danger to Egg and the mention of Bloodraven, whom Dunk himself has long feared, Dunk demands to know, Who are you? A friend, says Sir Maynard, one who has been watching you and wondering at your presence in this nest of adders. So, as we mentioned earlier, it does seem highly likely that Dunk and Egg were not as inconspicuous as they thought, at least not to someone like Brendan Rivers, who knows, quote, quite a lot. 
Sir Maynard continued to fill Duncan on the details as he worked to bandage the wound on his left arm. Ambrose Butterwell has never been what you might call decisive. He had doubts about this plot from the beginning, doubts that were inflamed when he learned that the boy did not bear the sword. And this morning, his dragon's egg vanished, and with it, the last dregs of his courage. When Dunk declared Glendon Ball's innocence, Sir Maynard didn't deny it, though he did assert that Lord Peak would find an egg in young Ball's saddlebag all the same. And speaking of eggs, where is Egg? Once again, Plum told him he's with the gods, but Dunk is done with hints and metaphors and threatens him. Tell me where to find the boy or I will snap your bloody neck, friend or no. The sept, you'd do well to go armed. Is that plain enough for you, Dunk? Was the reply, and Dunk left him there to make his way to Sir Uther Underleaf's tent to retrieve his sword and shield. And that, incidentally, is the last we see of Sir Maynard Plum. Arriving at the castle sept, Dunk found it quiet and dim, lit by candles at the various altars. Lord Butterwell was kneeling before the altar of the crone, evidently praying for wisdom. Two men-at-arms attempted to stop Dunk from entering, but they were dismissed by a voice. I warned you he would find me. And then it says, When Egg stepped out from the shadows beneath the father, his shaven head shining in the candlelight, Dunk almost rushed to the boy to pluck him up with a glad cry and crush him in his arms. Something in Egg's tone made him hesitate. He sounds more angry than afraid, and I've never seen him look so stern. In Butterwell, on his knees. Something is queer here. Something indeed. The egg had hatched, and the dragon was in control of Lord Butterwell, for better or for worse. I told you, I'm better with a sword. As Dunk entered the sept, Lord Butterwell began to babble, and we get yet another confession. I've done the boy no harm. I knew his father well when I was the king's hand. Prince Makar needs to know. None of this was my idea. Peak, this was all his doing. I swear it by the seven. May the gods strike me down if I am false. He told me whom I must invite and who must be excluded. And he brought this boy pretender here. I never wanted to be part of any treason. You must believe me. Tom Heddle now. He urged me on. I will not deny it. My good son, married to my eldest daughter, but I will not lie. He was a part of this. Heddle commands my garrison. I've been too lax, I will allow, but I've never been a traitor. Frey and I harbored doubts about Lord Peak's pretender since the beginning. He does not bear the sword. If he were his father's son, Bittersteel would have armed him with blackfire. And all this talk about a dragon, madness, madness and folly... And now they've taken the egg, the dragon's egg my grandsire had from the king himself as a reward for Leal's service. It was there this morning when I woke, and my guards swear no one entered or left the bedchamber. It may be that Lord Peak bought them, I cannot say, but the egg is gone. They must have it, or else... And so then Dunk, wondering if perhaps a dragon had hatched, took egg aside for a word. Now it was time to hear Egg's confession. 
I'm sorry, sir. I just meant to send a raven to my father. I didn't know what else to do. The maester brought me to them, once he saw my father's ring. Lord Butterwell and Lord Frey, sir. Some guards were there as well. Everyone was upset. Someone stole the dragon's egg. I knew I was in trouble when the maester showed Lord Butterwell my ring. I thought about saying that I'd stolen it, but I didn't think he would believe me. Then I remembered this one time I heard my father talking about something Lord Bloodraven had said, about how it was better to be frightening than frightened. And so I told them that my father had sent us here to spy for him, and that he was on his way here with an army, and that his lordship had best release me and give up this treason, or it would mean his head. It worked better than I thought it would. Lord Frey wished Lord Butterwell happiness in his marriage and announced that he was returning to the twins forthwith. That was when his lordship brought us here to pray. And before Dunk could finish warning Egg about what might happen if Gorman Peak learned that he was in the castle, the door to the sep crashed open to reveal Black Tom Heddle with a dozen men-at-arms. Lord Butterwell attempted to intervene, telling Heddle that their cause was lost, that Frey had left, and Makar was on his way. But this only encouraged Heddle, who had come to seize Egg, just as Dunk feared, and now offered a stag to the first man to draw blood. Lord Butterwell forbade bloodshed in the Sept and expressly warned the men not to harm Egg or his sworn shield. Fortunately for Dunk, the men-at-arms were just confused enough at the quarrel between their liege lord and his champion to not take action immediately. Black Tom wasn't bothered, though, and he was full of scorn for Dunk's abilities, having seen his loss to Sir Uther earlier, and so he charged. Dunk warned him that he was better with a sword, one of his catchphrases, and he blocked a cut before giving way. Speaking of catchphrases, Egg was right behind Dunk, screaming one of his own, "'Get him, sir! Get him! Get him! He's right there!' Dunk started to chant the now-familiar shield rhyme in his head before realizing that his new shield was pine, not oak and iron. And then he ran out of room to give and stumbled to one knee. Somehow, though, Dunk turned his pine shield into a weapon, driving off his knee with his full force behind it. It says, Black Tom stumbled backwards, yet somehow kept his balance. Dunk pulled right after him, smashing him with the shield again and again, using his size and strength to knock Heddle halfway across the sept. Then Dunk took his sword and slashed Heddle's leg, blocked another cut with the pine shield, cut his opponent again in the leg, blocked another clumsy cut, and then sliced the man's arm off with a ferocious blow. As Heddle reeled in surprise, Dunk moved in for the kill. It says, I told you, Dunk stabbed him through the throat. I'm better with a sword. Lord Butterwell's relief lasted only as long as it took for two of Heddle's men to flee the sept. Then he told Dunk, We must be gone from White Walls before those two bring word of this to Gorman Peak. He's more friends amongst the guests than I do. The postern gate in the north wall will slip out there. Come, we must make haste. And although the man was raving and an utter craven, Leaving did indeed seem to be the best policy, and so Dunk instructed Egg to depart with their host. Egg, go with Lord Butterwell. He put an arm around the boy and lowered his voice. Don't stay with him any longer than you need to. Give Rain his head and get away before his lordship changes sides again. Make for Maidenpool. It's closer than King's Landing. 
And then, leaving Egg in the hands of Ambrose Butterwell, Dunk entered the feast to blow the lid off the charade of attorney. He started by addressing the fiddler as Your Grace and Damon, which led to the desired attention. Sir Duncan, I'm pleased that you're with us. What would you have of me? Justice for Glendon Ball, Dunk said, which led to silence and then racket as Lord Custain and a dozen others tried to shout him down, accusing Sir Glendon of that old crime of bastardy. Dunk wondered if he was alone there, but Sir Kyle the Cat joined him in wondering how Fireball's son could have done such a thing as steal the dragon's egg. Damon was clearly moved by the reference to the great hero of the Blackfire cause, but the evidence, he says... Nonsense, said Dunk. Clendon was in the yard training all day. Damon saw him. The egg was planted in the saddlebag. What's more, Dunk declared, the egg Lord Peak claimed to have found in Ball's possession and was now keeping safely guarded was no more than a painted stone. Chaos was the answer to that, and Damon's utter confusion. Why would Lord Peak do this thing, Damon wanted to know to remove Ball from his path so that Damon could win the tourney. Since Ball wasn't for sale, like all the other competitors had been, and he was too good, he had to be removed. Damon, it seems, was unaware that the fix was in after all, and was highly disturbed by this information. When Lord Peake denied it, Dunk challenged Damon to ask Glendon Ball himself. Peek insisted that Ball was being questioned and would soon confess, which Dunk named torture. In a rage, Peek commanded Dunk to be silent. One more word and I will rip your tongue out by the roots. But our detective hero is on a roll. And he replied, you lie. That's two words. Peek threatened Dunk again then, but Damon silenced him. No, Damon's voice was dangerously quiet. I want the truth of this. I will settle this as my father would. Sir Glendon stands accused of grievous crimes. As a knight, he has a right to defend himself by strength of arms. I shall meet him in the lists and let the gods determine guilt or innocence. And so it was a savagely beaten and bleeding Glendon Ball who was brought to Dunk and Sir Kyle in the maester's chambers to be patched up so that he could face Damon Blackfire in the lists. Dunk's showdown with Black Tom Heddle had fortunately saved Glendon's fingers, but he was in pretty rough shape. When he asked who he was to face, Dunk told him the Fiddler, although his name is Damon Blackfire. Glendon Ball apparently knew that already, and he saw the irony in the situation. My father died for his. I would have been his man, and gladly. I would have fought for him, killed for him, and died for him. But I could not lose for him. They met at dawn, on a tourney ground, turned to mud by the rain and wreathed in mists. Many of the guests had left in the night, but those that remained gathered in the stands to watch. Dunk acted as Sir Glendon's squire, and at the last moment recalled Prince Baylor's advice before his own trial at Ashford, and handed Ball a tourney lance. And then Damon Blackfire appeared, as himself at last, a fiddler no more, it says, the trappings of his warhorse now displayed the three-headed dragon of House Blackfire, black on a field of red. 
The prince had washed the black dye from his hair as well, so that it flowed down to his collar in a cascade of silver and gold that glimmered like beaten metal in the torchlight. Then the herald issued the call to arms. Sir Glendon the Bastard stands accused of theft and murder, and now comes forth to prove his innocence at the hazard of his body. Damon of House Blackfire, the second of his name, right-born king of the Andals and the Roinar and the First Men, lord of the Seven Kingdoms and protector of the realm, comes forth to prove the truth of the accusations against the Bastard Glendon. And then, though Dunk couldn't bear to watch... On the very first pass, Sir Glendonball unhorsed Damon Blackfire, who lay insensible in the mud, along with Gorman Peak's plans. When Damon was helped to his feet, he was hailed by laughter and cries of, The Brown Dragon! Moments later, they heard trumpets and sentries' cries. An army had appeared outside the walls. From Maidenpool had come Lord Mooton, from Raventree, Lord Blackwood, from Duskendale, Lord Darklin. The royal domains about King's Landing sent forth Hayfords, Rossbys, Stokeworts, Masseys, and the King's own sworn swords, led by three knights of the King's Guard, and stiffened by three hundred raven's teeth with tall white weirwood bows. Maddenell Lofton herself rode forth in strength from her haunted towers at Harrenhal, clad in black armor that fit her like an iron glove, her long red hair streaming. The light of the rising sun glittered off the points of five hundred lances and ten times as many spears. The knight's gray banners were reborn in half a hundred gaudy colors, and above them all flew two regal dragons on night-black fields. The great three-headed beast of King Ares I Targaryen, red as fire, and a white-winged fury breathing scarlet flame. Not Makar after all, Dunk knew when he saw those banners. The banners of the Prince of Summerhall showed four three-headed dragons, two and two, the arms of the fourth-born son of the late King Daron II Targaryen. A single white dragon announced the presence of the King's Hand, Lord Brynden Rivers. Bloodraven himself had come to White Walls. The story tells us that, quote, the first Blackfire Rebellion had perished on the red grass field in blood and glory. The second Blackfire Rebellion ended with a whimper. The men who had gathered at White Walls to name the next Blackfire candidate king refused to fight, and we'll have more on Damon himself shortly. But Bloodraven immediately set about taking control of the castle and the men who had surrendered it. Dunk at first took his place among the prisoners with the other hedge knights, as all the armed men in the castle were rounded up and made to surrender their arms. It's noted that Maynard Plum had, quote, melted away sometime during the night, and while there's a bit more of a story to review, that is actually a perfect segue to digress into a deeper discussion of Maynard Plum. Throughout the episode, I've referred to Maynard Plum's hidden identity, and of course, most of us will know that the prevailing idea is that Plum is none other than Brendan Rivers in disguise. The how and the why, though, are what need to be addressed, as well as a review of the many hints and small ironies that are laid throughout the story. 
As mentioned earlier, there's something highly significant in our first look at Plum, and given the order of publication, therefore also our first-hand look at Bloodraven in the series, coming in a grove of weirwood stumps. In A Dance with Dragons, when Bran Stark finally meets the Three-Eyed Crow, later revealed to be Brynden Rivers, it is in a cave below a weirwood grove. The roots were everywhere, twisting through earth and stone, closing off some passages and holding up the roofs of others. There must be a whole grove of weirwoods growing up above us. Now, Sir Maynard Plum is described as a tall, thin, stoop-shouldered man with long, straight flaxen hair. And when he's introduced, Egg is immediately curious about his name, asking if he's kin to Lord Viserys Plum. Distantly, though I doubt his lordship would admit to it, is the reply, and there's an irony here that can be explained by a brief look at the recent history of House Plum. Lord Ossifer Plum was a wealthy lord in the Westerlands during the reign of Aegon IV. Late in his life, a match was arranged with young Princess Elena Targaryen, though Lord Ossifer would not survive the wedding night. Rumors would swirl that he died during the bedding when he beheld his new wife's naked beauty, and those rumors would grow into a six-foot-long cock when Princess Elena announced that she was with child. The child born nine months after his father's death was called Viserys after his mother's uncle, the late king, and the rumor that he was actually the son of King Aegon persisted beneath the laughable tale of Lord Ossifer's enormous member. So if Maynard Plum is truly Bloodraven, and Viserys Plum is truly the son of Aegon Targaryen and his cousin Elena, then they're actually much more than distant kin, really half-brothers. And it's the second part of the remark, though I doubt that his lordship would admit to it, that is the irony here, since Lord Plum could hardly admit to their kinship without abandoning his own claim to the name Plum and possibly his lordship. Now, just moments later, there is another little nod to Plum's true identity when Sir Kyle relates the story of how Lord Butterwell came to be in possession of a dragon's egg. Dunk can't believe that such a thing happened, and he says so. We'd all be bastard sons of old King Aegon if half these tales were true. Sir Maynard's reply, and who's to say we're not, is amusing with regard to Aegon's behavior, but if Maynard is indeed Aegon's son Brynden, we get to a whole new level of ironic humor. Later, Dunk mentions his and Egg's intent to travel north to take service with Lord Baron Stark, Sir Maynard gives some good advice with regard to how one should fight the Ironborn, but it's his offhand jest about the North. It's too cold up there for me. That stands out in light of Lord Bloodraven's future as a Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and later as a living tree beyond the wall. We see Sir Maynard react to numerous remarks about Bloodraven that veer into treasonous territory. As mentioned, Sir Kyle the Cat of Misty Moor is a loyalist, but clearly not a fan of Bloodraven. And when he complains about the Hand's inaction regarding the Ironborn problem, Sir Maynard had remarked that Bloodraven is watching Tyrosh, where Bittersteel is plotting, and so keeping the king's ships close in case they were needed to repel an invasion. Which is perfectly logical, by the way, since he also notes that the Lannisters are building their own ships to meet the raiders at sea, 
which is no more than what would be expected from the Warden of the West. And since we mentioned in the last episode that indications are the throne will eventually get involved in the fight with the Ironborn, let's just point out here that a period of time when Damon Blackfire's eldest son is held alive by his cousins in King's Landing and Bittersteel's hands are ostensibly tied might be a great time for the Hand to relax his vigilance on Tyrosh and turn his eye to the problems in the West. Now, Sir Maynard also seems to have taken a very philosophical view of the treasons spouted by Sir Glendon Ball, though we don't get to see his judgment in the story after the Hand takes Whitewalls, we do see a fairly mild reaction to Sir Glendon's behavior during the toasting. It's really unlikely that Bloodraven finds much objectionable in men expressing their opinions in these small ways in private, in spite of his reputation. He seems to be more concerned with men openly preaching treason and encouraging rebellion, and while his many eyes do in fact see many different things, those things that he acts upon seem to be the things that pose overt threats. So why did the Hand choose to go to this wedding tourney at Whitewalls personally? Furthermore, how did he know that he should, and how did he disguise himself so effectively? Brendan Rivers is nothing if not distinctive looking, and since the Redgrass Field was even more so with his single eye. It's clear that something must have alerted Bloodraven to plotting in the Riverlands. Perhaps he had a spy in Gorman Peak's household and knew of the arrival of a young hedge knight from Essos, as certainly must have happened. Perhaps the news of the wedding and some idea of the guest list had filtered back to King's Landing and caused suspicion, as it clearly did for Egg. Maybe he had spies within White Walls as well, though we think there's a chance he might not have needed them. Take the description of the roof rafters at White Walls. The rafters overhead were carved from the bone-pale trunks of weirwoods. There are theories in the fandom, based in part upon the convenient distribution of weirwood objects in Westeros and beyond, that it's possible for an accomplished green seer to see through anything made of weirwood, as well as through the trees, Recall that one day the three-eyed crow would tell Bran Stark, in time you will see well beyond the trees themselves. So, if indeed this is possible, and there are a number of things in the story to suggest that it might be, not the least of which is Jamie Lannister's odd dream on the weirwood stump we mentioned earlier, which seems to indicate a residual power in the wood even after the faces in the trunk have been cut down and removed, then Bloodraven, if he was indeed at that time an accomplished greenseer, may have been able to see for himself the extent of the plotting in Lord Butterwell's household. In other words, White Walls itself could have been one giant peephole into Lord Butterwell's plants. One thing we don't know is how long Bloodraven actually went about in the guise of Sir Maynard. We see that the humble hedge knight is highly effective at drawing information out of the people he meets, from his fellows Sir Kyle and Sir Glendon, who both said very revealing things about their political leanings in his presence, to his chatting with the innkeeper at the ferry, who, as we said, was likely able to tell him exactly what lords and knights had crossed en route to Whitewalls. One person who didn't trust him, though, is Dunk, who warned Egg to stay away from the man. This prompted Egg to wonder if Sir Maynard meant to steal the dragon's egg, another little irony in light of the fact that 
it's highly likely that he did. And in case you missed that, when Dunk first saw the egg, he noted that it sat out in the open in Lord Butterwell's bedchamber, which is noted to be guarded day and night by guards stationed outside the door, but it's also specifically mentioned that the chamber has an ensuite privy. The next day, Dunk encounters the troop of dwarfs who had provided the entertainment the night before as they departed. It says of one of them, up close the little man smelled like a privy. And later, when Egg is asking Blood Raven whatever did happen with the dragon's egg, given that it was guarded day and night, the answer was, were I to guess, I'd say someone climbed up inside the privy shaft. Although Egg objects that the privy shaft would be too small, Bloodraven points out that a child could do it, and while he seems to be tweaking his young kinsman, Tunk exclaims, Or a dwarf! And so the implication is that those dwarfs worked for Bloodraven, just as the dwarfs at Joffrey Baratheon's wedding worked for Peter Baelish, and considering these dwarfs' allegiance, if we just rewind a bit to the way this particular troop entered the wedding, in the belly of a wheeled wooden pig, we get a possible clever reference to the horse that was used by the men of Greece to enter the besieged city of Troy during the Trojan War and finally obtain their victory in the Greek legend of the Iliad. Okay, so to recap, Bloodraven became aware of the intent of this tourney, either through his spy network or his own magically aided visions, and assumed a disguise to infiltrate it and spy on the guests. He also hired a troop of dwarfs to assist him in repossessing Lord Butterwell's egg for House Targaryen, the execution of which suggests that he was either familiar with White Walls or had inside knowledge of it. In the guise of Maynard Plum, he befriended Dunk and seems to have been aware of both his and his squire's identities. For all that the Second Blackfire Rebellion must have been a carefully plotted event, Bloodraven seems to have been sufficiently aware in advance to muster an army of over 5,000 to appear outside the walls of the castle on the morning after the tourney, conveniently timed just after Sir John the Fiddler revealed his true identity. And if you're paying attention, we now have three hedge knights with secret identities in this story, or three mystery knights, if you will. Dunk as the Gallows Knight, hoping not to be recognized as Sir Duncan the Tall in the journey for reasons of his own. Damon the Second Blackfire as Sir John the Fiddler with his silver hair dyed black to hide his true identity. And Brynden Rivers as Sir Maynard Plum, present at the tourney as a spy and likely to time the arrival of his army lying in wait at exactly the right time when the egg was safe and Damon revealed. But the last question to address is how he pulled off this disguise, and the answer to that would seem to be a magical glamour. Bloodraven was a reputed sorcerer, after all, and so let's review what we know of glamours. Glamours, the kindly man of the House of Black and White, will tell Arya Stark, take years to perfect and are used by sorcerers, quote, weaving light and shadow and desire to make illusions that trick the eye. Melisandre gives more details, telling Jon Snow that a glamour or illusion is a spell, quote, made of shadow and suggestion. Men see what they expect to see. And she continues, 
The strongest glamours are built of such things as bones, a dead man's boots, a hank of hair, a bag of finger bones. With whispered words and prayer, a man's shadow can be drawn forth from such and draped about another like a cloak. The wearer's essence does not change, only his seeming. Both Melisandre and the kindly man indicate that glamours aren't foolproof and that sharp eyes can see through them. In the mystery night, when Sir Maynard helps Dunk away from his altercation with Alan Cockshaw at the well, Dunk notices something odd about his friend. It says, this close? There was something queer about the cast of Sir Maynard's features. The longer Dunk looked, the less he seemed to see. And so, perhaps a clear indication that Maynard Plum wasn't who he appeared to be. And now, let's look at one detail of his appearance that we haven't mentioned yet. When they first meet him, it says, Plum's cloak was as purple as his name, though frayed about the edges and badly dyed. A moonstone brooch, as big as a hen's egg, fastened it at the shoulder. And when he appears to dunk at the well, it says, Through the rain, all he could make out was a hooded shape and a single pale white eye. It was only when the man came forward that the shadowed face beneath the cowl took on the familiar features of Sir Maynard Plum, the pale eye, no more than the moonstone brooch that pinned his cloak at the shoulder. This carefully noted giant moonstone seems a bit out of place for a humble hedge knight. Dunk, Sir Kyle, and Sir Glendon certainly have no such riches, nor did Sir Arlen or Sir Bennis or even the relatively prosperous Sir Uther Underleaf. Furthermore, the phrases pale white and single eye are both highly evocative of Brendan River's appearance. So the significance of the gem is easy to see if we look at other known glamours. First, in the case of Mance Raider, glamoured to appear as Rattleshirt. It's noted, in the black iron fetter about his wrist, the ruby seemed to pulse. And in Melisandre's point of view, there is a direct connection drawn between that ruby, the one she herself wears, and the glamour. If Melisandre herself wears a glamour, as we all suspect, her ruby is described frequently as winking and pulsing, and it's possible that she has the power to sustain an external glamour since she notes how the ruby was burning her skin as Rattleshirt, in the guise of Mance Raider, was being burned alive. Finally, we have Stannis' sword, Lightbringer, which Maester Aemon insists is glamoured. And once again, there's the gemstone, a great square-cut ruby set in the hilt of the sword. So Maynard's gem would appear to be a key part of his glamour, although whether he has a bone or a hank of hair or a pair of boots from the person whose guise he's assumed, we'll likely never know. After the surrender of the conspirators, Bloodraven sent Sir Roland Craycall of the King's Guard to find Dunk amongst the prisoners. Sir Roland tells him that the knights and men-at-arms following their liege lords would all get off relatively lightly. The lords themselves would be pardoned if they told the truth and delivered hostages to the crown, although any who had already taken pardons after the Redgrass Field stood to be imprisoned, attainted, or executed. Arriving at Blood Raven's pavilion, Dunk saw the truth of that statement in action, as the heads of Sir Tom Heddle, whom he himself had killed after he tried to seize Prince Aegon in the Sept, and Lord Gorman Peake, the mastermind, flanked the entrance, impaled on spears. Dunk reached out to close Lord Peake's eyes, thinking that he owed him that much. 
If Roger had not died that day, the old man would never have looked twice at Dunk when he saw him chasing that pig through the alleys of King's Landing. Some old dead king gave a sword to one son instead of another. That was the start of it. And now I'm standing here, and poor Roger's in his grave. And we're brought back to the beginning of the story, and Dunk's brief fantasy about defeating Lord Peak in the lists so he could tell him that the boy who replaced the squire he had killed at the Redgrass Field had defeated him. In a sense, that wish did come to pass, although in the end, Dunk was far more philosophical about the relationship than he had been a few days earlier. Inside the tent, Bloodraven, accompanied by Egg, dressed as a prince, was speaking to Lord Butterwell while Lord Frey and his son sat nearby. Treason is no less vile because the traitor proves a craven, Bloodraven was saying, and then he pronounced his judgment. Butterwell would be allowed to keep one-tenth of his fortune and his new wife. Whitewalls would be forfeit to the Iron Throne. Quote, I mean to pull it down stone by stone and sow the ground that it stands upon with salt. In twenty years, no one will remember it existed. Old fools and young malcontents still make pilgrimages to the red grass field to plant flowers on the spot where Damon Blackfire fell. I will not suffer White Walls to become another monument to the Black Dragon. On that note, Butterwell and Lord Frey were both dismissed, though Lord Frey's punishment isn't mentioned, and based on Bloodraven's promise that they would speak again later, and knowing what we do of House Frey in the main series, it wouldn't be surprising if somehow Lord Frey had contrived to escape being grouped in with the primary conspirators. Bloodraven then turned his attention on Dunk, commenting, No doubt Prince Makar had some good reason for allowing his son to squire for a hedge knight, and asked how he and Egg came to be in this particular situation. He repeated the claim Egg had made to Butterwell about Makar sending them, and Dunk was forced to admit that the truth was that they had simply blundered into it. Egg, being Egg, declared they had it all in hand before the hand showed up, he then insisted that Glendon Ball be found and released. Bloodraven found this to be insolent and commented to Dunk that his squire needed to be beaten. Dunk replied that he'd tried, but Egg is a prince after all. Here's the passage. I've tried, my lord. He is a prince, though. What he is, said Bloodraven, is a dragon. Rise, sir. Dunk rose. There have always been Targaryens who dreamed of things to come since long before the conquest, Bloodraven said, so we should not be surprised if from time to time a blackfire displays the gift as well. Damon dreamed that a dragon would be born at White Walls, and it was. The fool just got the color wrong. And we have to wonder, based on what we can glean about Bloodraven's abilities in the present of A Song of Ice and Fire, if he possessed similar abilities in the past, or if he himself experienced the Targaryen dreams, in which case his interpretation of Damon's dream could be based on his own visions of what was to come, and he could be, in that moment, indicating his secret knowledge of Egg's future, especially given that Egg's ascension will ultimately be so closely tied to a major turning point in Bloodraven's own life. We can only hope that time will tell us the truth of that. The Hand then wondered aloud if he should perhaps bring the young dragon back to King's Landing, or send him back to Summerhall. 
since Makar wouldn't take kindly to the first course of action, and Egg himself strongly objected to the second, Blood Raven allowed that the pair could leave. Egg boldly asked for some gold so that Dunk could pay his ransom to Sir Uthor, and Blood Raven's reply was a laugh. It seems to me somewhat reminiscent of his alter ego, Maynard Plum. Whatever happened to the modest boy I once met at King's Landing? As you say, my prince, I'll instruct my paymaster to give you as much gold as you wish, within reason. Dunk insisted that he would pay it back, but the hand wasn't convinced. And one last thing before they left. Dunk asked what would happen to Damon. Bloodraven, it says, declared that it would be for King Ares to decide, but then he offered his opinion. Damon has four younger brothers and sisters as well. Should I be so foolish as to remove his pretty head, his mother will mourn, his friends will curse me for a kinslayer, and Bittersteel will crown his brother Hagon. Dead, young Damon is a hero. Alive, he's an obstacle in my half-brother's path. He can hardly make a third Blackfire king, whilst the second remains so inconveniently alive. Besides, such a noble captive will be an ornament to our court, and a living testament to the mercy and benevolence of his grace, King Eris. And after answering Egg's question about the egg and how it could have been stolen, the two are finally dismissed, and the story ends, and with it so ends our journey through the tales of Sir Duncan the Tall and his squire. This story has been all about giving historical context to the main series, especially the Blackfire saga, as well as being a vehicle for the introduction of Bloodraven on page. The year after the Mystery Night was published, A Dance with Dragons came out, and both Blackfires and Bloodraven are key elements of the hidden story that lies beneath the narrative of that novel. At the same time, our journey through the trilogy of tales has taken us along the growth arc of Sir Duncan and his squire. By the time we see them next, hopefully Dunk will have greater confidence in his own critical thinking and perhaps a sight less confidence in his jousting. Egg was the dragon that hatched in this story, and since you can't put a hatchling back in its shell, we'll have to see how his secret identity plays out in future stories, how difficult or not he'll find it to return to being a humble squire. And speaking of future stories, coming up, we'll have a brief exploration of what the future has in store for our hedge knight and his squire. But first, we're going to conclude our analysis of the mystery knight with a quick recap of Damon II Blackfire's background and his fate. He is Damon of House Blackfire, the second of his name, or so he would style himself if he ever achieves the Iron Throne. You would be surprised to know how many lords prefer their kings brave and stupid. It was Sir Maynard Plum who dismissed Damon as brave and stupid. The end of his rebellion would prove the truth of that. Faced with an army that far outnumbered his supporters, the pretender would proclaim, They cannot cow us, for our cause is just. We'll slash through them and ride hell-bent for King's Landing. Sound the trumpets! Calling for another red grass field did little to encourage his erstwhile supporters, but even when all hope seemed lost and men were refusing to fight with him, melting away like the morning mists, it says, The second Damon Blackfire rode forth alone, 
reined up before the royal host, and challenged Lord Bloodraven to single combat. I will fight you, or the coward Ares, or any champion you care to name. The young man was instead pulled from his horse and clapped into golden fetters. Brave, yes, if you can imagine the young man daring to challenge Lord Bloodraven, who had killed his own father and brothers at the Redgrass Field, and fought a famous duel with Bittersteel, armed with the Valyrian steel sword Dark Sister. Very brave indeed, and also very stupid. Regarding Damon's fate, Bloodraven made his opinion clear to Duncan Egg at the end of their audience, and the world of ice and fire indicates that King Ares agreed. As for Damon, it says... He lived on for several more years, a hostage in the Red Keep. Some wondered at his imprisonment, but the wisdom of it was plain. His next eldest brother, Hagon, could not claim the throne if Daemon was still alive. The World of Ice and Fire also gave us a little more background to the events that would become known as the Second Blackfire Rebellion, incidentally also leading to Daemon's father's rebellion, henceforth being termed the First Blackfire Rebellion. Damon the Younger, it says, dreamed of being king, but Bittersteel did not support him. The question of why is problematic, though. Some would say it was because Lord Peak's plan was unsound, that he himself was somewhat unhinged by his thirst for revenge and his quest to recover his castles. Going off outcomes, we can't really deny the appearance of truth there, and we've certainly seen how the quest for lost lands can affect a man's judgment with Sir Eustace Osgrey's actions in The Sworn Sword. But it's heavily implied that Bittersteel didn't approve of Damon himself, of his, quote, love of music and fine things, and, above all, his relationship with Lord Alan Cockshaw. In spite of Damon's obvious valor and chivalry, the implication is that the hardened warrior, Agor Rivers, could not bring himself to support a candidate who was so clearly gay. And as George has indeed confirmed Damon's sexuality, in case the plethora of double entendres directed at Dunk in the Mystery Night didn't convince you, perhaps we need to add homophobia to the list of Bittersteel's unpleasant character traits. Damon's dreams had convinced him of his destiny and of the validity of his cause, but as Dunk well knew and thought when they spoke on the roof at Whitewalls, dreams were a treacherous ground on which to build. Damon dreamed of his brothers lying dead, of a castle with white walls, and a dragon bursting from an egg, and of a seven-foot-tall knight wearing a white cloak. All of these things came true after a fashion. Unfortunately for Damon, his dreams do not appear to have specifically shown him as king, and his rebellion was based on an assumption, his support garnered from greedy and embittered men who were blind to reason and reality, or from men so credulous and weak that they would follow where they were led, but only to a point. And that's the tragedy of Damon Blackfire the Younger. Perhaps one day we'll learn more about what befell him in King's Landing, how he was treated there, and what brought about his death at what was still a very young age. Did the long arm of Bittersteel reach across the narrow sea to do away with this roadblock in the younger Hagon's way? Until we read about it in the pages of a history or perhaps another Dunkin' Egg story, we have to content ourselves with hoping that King Aerys followed his hand's advice and that Damon's captivity was indeed, quote, a living testament to the mercy and benevolence of his grace, King Ares.
I dreamed it. This pale white castle. You. A dragon bursting from an egg. I dreamed it all. Just as I once dreamed of my brothers lying dead. They were twelve and I was only seven. So they laughed at me. And died. I am two and twenty now. And I trust my dreams. past three episodes, we've explored the tales of Duncan Egg, from the origins of the Hedge Knight to his squire's secret identity, and their many adventures together. In the Hedge Knight, we encountered a story with all the elements of heroic fantasy, from medieval trappings, a hero of humble origin who faces a test or challenge, and a dose of magic, implied with references to prophetic dreams and dragons. The Sword and Sword was more of a western containing the principal elements of a harsh, often dusty or arid landscape, a subplot of revenge, reference to a frontier or contested border, and a showdown. In the Mystery Night, we get exactly what's promised in the title, a mystery. It starts with the initial hook of the puzzle or questions posed by the tourney, by its reward and its participants. It continues with the mood and the language used and goes on to include active participation by the reader in the gathering of evidence. The periodic review of knowledge and ultimately the sequence of confessions by the guilty parties along with the final exposition by the detective, in this case Dunk, when he confronts Damon and Lord Peak in the feasting hall, should all feel very familiar to anyone who's ever read a detective story. We can't know exactly what form future tales will take, but that there will be more, we've been assured. As far as how many, in 2015 on his Not A Blog, George replied to a query about the future of Duncan Egg that 12 to 13 stories in total is, quote, just a guess. I write them one at a time, years apart, so I'm really not sure. But he went on to add that he has specific ideas for a number of them. There's the one set in the north that people have been calling the She-Wolves of Winterfell, though that will not be the actual title. After that, or maybe before, if I jump around in time, there'll be the village hero, the sellsword, the champion, the kingsguard, the lord commander, and several more in between. So in our last episode, I went into some detail about the development of the story set in the north. And here we have hints about several other tales yet to come, which would bring the total to nine stories, with several others promised. Later that same year, in the afterword to A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, George mentioned that the pair would one day find themselves beyond the narrow sea, in the disputed lands and the cities of Essos. We can guess that might be the story called The Sellsword, and the fact that Bittersteel's Golden Company has been known to fight in the disputed land since its founding after the first Blackfire Rebellion raises some very tantalizing prospects for that story. And having indicated that he might jump around in time, there's a possibility we get to see the events in Dorne and the Reach that took place during the 18-month gap between the Hedge Knight and the Sworn Sword, such as whatever happened with Lady Vaith or at Sunspear, the fight with the Ironborn aboard the White Lady, their visit to the Citadel, and perhaps more. And certainly if the Winterfell story comes next, there might be events that occur en route that are returned to in future installments. 
We might also get to see how Egg met his wife, Betha Blackwood, and perhaps revisit Lady Rohan during her marriage to Lord Gerald Lannister. Will we get some clarification on her mysterious disappearance? Who knows? And there will most likely be a reunion with House Peak during the Peak Uprising of 233, where Prince Aegon was present and then King Makar was killed, which ultimately led to Egg becoming king. Not long after, following Egg ascending the throne, Dunk will be tasked with accompanying Brynden Rivers and Maester Aemon Targaryen to the Wall, which seems likely to be an installment, perhaps his first mission as a Kingsguard, although the nearest we can confirm that he was a Kingsguard is in 236 AC. That said, we don't know when he was named Lord Commander, and the possibility that command came later could be hinted at in the story titles. Sir Duncan was the crown's champion in a trial by combat in 239 AC against his and Egg's old friend, Lord Lionel Baratheon, when Lord Lionel briefly rebelled following Prince Duncan the Small's rejection of his daughter in favor of Jenny of Oldstones. And so we can hope the champion will deal with that story. And finally, Duncan Egg are moving inexorably towards Summerhall. Since all the action in A Song of Ice and Fire actually moves outwards from Summerhall, the events there in 259 AC can be seen as the hinge that connects the two series. And we certainly hope that the Lord Commander will deal with Summerhall and perhaps answer many questions. But as George said in the afterword of Night of the Seven Kingdoms, those are tales for another time. No doubt we'll all keep reading until the tales are told and our curiosity sated. J.R.R. Tolkien once said, The road goes ever on, and for our heroes, we hope that's the case for a long time to come. More travels and more travails await our hedge knight and his squire in the years to come. From dawn to the wall, their journeys will carry them across the length and breadth of the Seven Kingdoms, and even beyond the narrow sea to the disputed lands and the shining cities of Essos. Along the way, they'll cross paths with lords and knights and sorcerers, and many a fair maid and noble lady, to write their names into the annals of Westeros, never to be forgotten. Thanks so much for joining me today and for your fabulous support of this Duncan Egg series. And we hope you enjoyed this episode all about the Mystery Night, as well as the others in the series, as much as I enjoyed creating them. And coming soon, we have some exciting collaborations planned. And before too long, another regular episode of Radio Westeros coming your way. And now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for including Hedge Knights in his world, and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks for our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here, too. 
Heartfelt thanks to Jill, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Aileen, Casey, Elena Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K, Marja the Mage, June, John H, Lady of the Frostfang, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Maltude, Yorlan, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, the Madmaster of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Aerodo, Marcel, Lord Sosa, and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Joseph of House Rulo, Christian, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves, and Keeper of the Sacred Bear Den, Blythe Spirit, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Daniel Redbeard, Eric, Ashmarie, Painkiller Jane, Hari Krishna, Dutch, Defender of the Berm, The Red Woman, Brian, Lizzie, Phil, Lenny, Clay, Monaro Geek TV, Patrick, Scott, Tammy, Goldie Juke, Clarissa, Lady Storch, Ezra, Rachel, Joseph, Kevin, Danielle, Dennis, Emma, Judson, Lauren, Crimson Kate, Emily of the Eerie, Terry, Melissa, Maria, Ryan, Stephen, Matthew, Derek, Sir Kyle Dane, wielder of Sundown, Axe of the Afternoon, and Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune, sworn alesmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithomancers Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on iTunes, YouTube, or Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, email, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now.